there. I'll turn my mic on and so you can hear me. We'll, we'll make it through this year. We're just getting started, so we'll be fine. A few glitches all the time. But the Gospel of Mark, if you didn't hear me. The Gospel of Mark. Now, the Daniel study, some of you have been asking. Those MP3s we'll have available. We'll start get working on those this week and have them available. And Pastor Jim is eagerly waiting to give away a Bible if you'd like one to follow along with us so you can read with us. We're going to cover the first 20 verses of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, again, in the New Testament, the second Gospel that's recorded. But getting back to Daniel that, that we finished last week, it was uh, such a tremendous wonderful study that we're in. I hope you were blessed by going through the book of Daniel. I know that many of you said that you were. So we'll have those MP3s in the bookstore in the next week or so as we get those ready and put all the studies together of that. We've even received some emails I have of people that uh, out of uh, this area of Greeley uh, that have gotten online and listened to that Daniel study. So uh, it's been a powerful study for people to go through and listen to. So uh, MP3s will be available of that. Also, just a couple things while you're turning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, as we start our new study in Mark's Gospel, is I want to remind you that the um, 89.7 Grace FM is on the air. I know most of you know that, and, and some of you have been listening to the radio station, but some people have been gone on vacation, and I'm just going to remind you over the next week or so, because we still have people that are out traveling, keep them in prayer, because traveling has been uh, kind of difficult throughout the whole nation is there's been blizzards and tornadoes and floods and everything that has taken place. And we have people in this fellowship that are traveling out east and trying to get home this weekend. And uh, we want to certainly keep them in prayer. Uh, but I want to remind you that Grace FM uh, is up and running, 89.7 on your FM dial. There are some stickers there at the information desk and in the bookstore that you can grab and uh, just remind people, uh, get the word out by mouth that there's a wonderful new Christian station with great teaching as Pastor Chuck Smith is teaching, Raul Reese, Mike McIntosh, uh, Bob Coy, these wonderful, wonderful Bible teachers that are on as the scriptures are being taught verse by verse. Also, we are on at 3.30 in the afternoons, Monday through Friday. So I just want to remind you of that. Also, just very quickly, and then we'll get into our study here, is that we have really enjoyed the poinsettias this year. They were beautiful, weren't they? And we've enjoyed them over the last several weeks, ever since, well, right after Thanksgiving. And, uh, but um, it is coming to uh, an end, the holidays and putting things away, and the poinsettias, some of them, they just look beautiful, don't they? And there's some out there in the foyer area, and um, they're starting to drop their leaves and everything, but if you want to take one of those, well, you can still enjoy, they're yours to take, all right? And uh, you can take it home and, and nurse it and enjoy it uh, for the next several days, and um, some people like to Maybe they have a hot house or something in, in their house and they like to just kind of keep it for next year or whatever it might be. But it's yours to take out there. So be sure to grab one of those if you so desire. So with that said, you should be in Mark chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 1 as we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so let's pray before we continue on. And Lord, we do come this morning and as we open up this year, 2011, we desire right now to learn of Jesus, to study him, to learn of his life and ministry um, that uh, is recorded for us here in this narrative account of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And Lord, may we be touched and, 
in deeply, and may we see Jesus. May we see him even more, his love and his compassion, and Lord, um, just what he has done for us. And may it really stir our hearts in this coming year. And as we see his love for us, may we just have a more love for him. And Lord, desire to walk with him and to please him in our lives. So we look forward to the next several weeks as we study the gospel of Mark. And Lord, open up our ears and open up our hearts and our eyes to see Jesus and to hear from him and to know him more. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, God, as he was organizing his people, the children of Israel, to lead um, the land of Egypt. And as they left Egypt and they were beginning their journey out into the wilderness, we were told there in the book of Exodus that they would leave Egypt in orderly ranks. That is, these two and a half million people, God's people, left in an orderly and organized fashion. And when they would wander through the wilderness and they're marching through the wilderness, they would do it in an organized fashion. Also, when they set up camp in the wilderness, it wasn't just all the people. And again, there's an estimate of between two and three million people that were journeying through the wilderness. It wasn't that they just plopped down all their stuff and pitched their tents wherever they wanted to. But God gave them a very specific way in which the camp was to be set up. And that really shouldn't surprise us since we have read uh, in our Corinthians study not long ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that we are to do all things decently and in order. God is a God of decency and order. And so as you look at Numbers chapter 2, it tells us how God would have the people set up their camp. There would be the tabernacle that, that we've discussed in our previous studies, and even as we went through Daniel, the tabernacle where they did the sacrifices, and the, the priests were there doing the priestly ministries and burning incense, and the Ark of the Covenant was. It was there in the middle of the camp with Moses and Aaron in the tribe of Levi, that priestly tribe. But then the other 12 tribes would camp around that tabernacle. And so there would be three tribes on the east side, and it would consist of the tribes, according to Numbers chapter 2, of Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. And Judah, we are told there in Numbers, was to be the one that would carry the standard. That is, they would carry this big banner, if you would. And so as they carried that banner, the tribe of Judah, the other tribes, along with Judah, that is the tribes of Issachar and Zebulon, they knew that's where they were supposed to be. When they sat up camp and they set up that banner and put it in the ground and that pole with that, that banner up, if you were from the tribe of Judah or Issachar and Zebulon, you knew that's where you needed to be on the east side. So that's how things were organized. When you went to the south side, there was um, the tribe of Reuben. They were the standard uh, or the one who carried the banner. And so they would be on the south side along with Simeon and Gad. On the west side of the camp was the tribe of Ephraim. They were the banner or, or standard tribe. And they camped along with Manasseh and Benjamin. And then on the north side was the tribe of Dan and Asher and Naphtali. And Dander, or Dan being the standard tribe that would carry that banner for the north side. And it's interesting because rabbinical teachers and scholars for centuries had taught that when Judah carried that standard, that banner through the wilderness, that it was a picture of a lion. 
In other words, as they would stop and set up camp, there is Judah, and they had that banner, and on it was a picture of a lion, and so the people knew those three tribes that they were to be over there. When Reuben carried their banner, they believed that Reuben had a picture of an ox. Ephraim's banner was a picture of a man, and Dan's banner was a picture of an eagle. Now, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with Mark's gospel? I thought we were supposed to be starting this gospel, and here you are talking about the book of Numbers and how the children of Israel are camped out there in the wilderness. Well, just stay with me, because I think you'll find this very interesting. The gospel of Matthew was written to show us that Jesus was indeed the king of kings. You see, each of the gospel narratives and accounts are addressing and emphasizing a certain audience. It doesn't mean that, that others couldn't read it and understand it, but Matthew was writing to those of, of the Jews who had a knowledge of the Old Testament. And Matthew was showing them that Jesus was Messiah, the King of Kings. So when you go through Matthew's gospel, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that are given there showing that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. Hey, he's the one that the prophets of old had spoken about the Messiah. Jesus is the one that fulfilled them. So it was Matthew writing to the Jews showing us that he is indeed the king of kings. Now Mark's gospel, which we're going to be spending the next few months studying, Mark was writing to the Romans to show that Jesus was the perfect servant. Luke who was Greek, Dr. Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, he was writing to the Greeks showing Jesus was the perfect man. And then John, when he wrote his gospel, he's writing to everybody showing that Jesus is deity, that he is indeed the Son of God, God incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I find it fascinating that as Judah with their banner, with the picture of a lion, and that shouldn't surprise us because the book of Genesis says that Judah is a lion's wealth. And so there was their picture of a lion as they're wandering through the wilderness, carrying that banner with the lion on it. They were, even though they were not aware of it, they were proclaiming what? That Jesus is the king of kings. You see, the lion is the symbol of the king of beasts. They were symbolizing, they were pointing to that Jesus is the king of kings, as Matthew emphasizes. Reuben, with their banner of an ox, were symbolizing that Jesus is the perfect servant, the ox being the symbol of the servant animal, one working, one pulling the plow, just as Mark is going to emphasize as we go through Mark's gospel. Ephraim, with their banner of a man, was symbolizing that Jesus was the perfect man, just as Luke emphasizes in his gospel. And then Dan with the banner of an eagle showing us that Jesus is deity, the eagle always being a symbol of what? Of deity. And that's what John emphasizes. I also find it very intriguing, as a lot of you know, is when you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, when John there describes that heavenly scene, and he is describing the throne of God and those four living creatures Surrounding the throne of God, and the first creature had the face of what? A lion. The second creature, the face of an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Those four living creatures in heaven speaking of Jesus, the King of kings, the perfect servant, the perfect man, God incarnate. Jesus would tell the religious leaders that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life. But these are days which testify of me. 
And one of the things that I hope that you always realize that from Genesis to Revelation, when we go through the Old Testament, that we see that oftentimes it speaks of, it points to, it illustrates Jesus Christ. It's one harmonious message of Jesus all throughout the scriptures. And a lot of Christians kind of miss that because they think, I don't need to go through the, the Old Testament. I don't need to learn of the tabernacle. I need to learn how they set up the camp and these banners and all of this. But if you look at it very carefully, you see that it points to the one that would come, Jesus Christ, the one that we consider our Lord, the one who is the Savior of the world. And so it's very fascinating to go through the scriptures and see how it does point to Jesus Christ. So don't miss that as you go through the scriptures in your readings this year. So here is Mark's gospel, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel, of course, means good news. It is proclaimed to you and to me this morning, truly good news. You and I have truly good news. The only true, really good news there is in the world today and that is Jesus Christ, that he came and died for you so that you can have forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven and come into true relationship with the Father. And Mark here, as we get into his gospel, doesn't waste any time getting to the good news of Jesus Christ. Mark begins his narrative beginning right into the heart of the gospel. Now, Mark doesn't go into any genealogy. He doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. He leaves that for Matthew and Luke, of course. But we see that Mark begins here with the baptism of Jesus. This gospel, the gospel of Mark, is the shortest of the gospels. It's only 16 chapters. The emphasis of Mark's gospel is on the deeds of Jesus, the service and the sacrifice of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. So Mark here is going to emphasize the stories and the activities and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, John Mark, or Mark who wrote this gospel, who was he? Oftentimes, people that are new to the Bible, they think, okay, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those guys were apostles or were disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's not so. We know that Matthew, the tax collector, was. We know that John, the last Gospel, the fourth Gospel that's recorded, that he was an apostle, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. But John Mark wasn't. And Luke, he was Greek, Dr. Luke, who wrote also the book of Acts, as I mentioned to you. And so here, Mark emphasizing the deeds of Jesus, and he was an interesting individual himself. He was probably a young teenager when Jesus was crucified. So the gospel that he writes is considered to be the understanding that he received from listening to Peter. Peter, of course, a disciple of Jesus. It's going to be all throughout Mark's gospel, we're told of Peter. And Peter is relating the stories of Jesus Christ to John Mark. Peter does call Mark his son. That is his son in the faith. And so Mark was a companion of Peter through much of Peter's ministry. So in this gospel, you have pretty much Peter's account as written by Mark. And of course, inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, there's only one part of Mark's gospel that he probably, John Mark, wrote from personal experience. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 14. Mark puts this little addendum, if you would, concerning the arrest of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know the story that when Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas the betrayer 
brought those troops that would come and arrest Jesus and bound him up and get ready to take him away to be put on trial in front of Caiaphas and the religious leaders, that it was the disciples that were, were all there, that they ran away, didn't they? They split. They took off. But there was a young man that we're told there in Mark chapter 14 that was there at the garden. And all he had was a linen cloth around his body, apparently thinking that, that he was a disciple of Jesus. The soldiers tried to grab him. And in their attempt to seize him, to grab him, all they got was the cloth, the cloth that was around his, his body. And so he ended up running off naked into the night, is what Mark's gospel told us. So the first streaker of the Bible. But many scholars, as you read that story, have suggested that that indeed was John Mark. For he would have been a young man there at that time, perhaps kind of following Jesus and watching him and fascinated with Jesus. He'd been hanging around there at the garden, kind of staying back, hoping to learn more, and, and kind of got into this trap unknowingly and had to flee for his life, leaving his garment behind. So the fact that Mark is the only one who mentions that incident, it is highly suggestive that indeed that was John Mark. We also know a little bit more about Mark, that Mark's mother, her name was Mary. There's lots of Marys that are in the Gospels. And you, as you go through and you read Mary's name, you've got to keep straight which Mary is being talked about. But we know that John Mark's mother, Mary, she was a fairly wealthy woman. She lived in Jerusalem, and her home was a place where Christians would gather for prayer. And last week, if you were here, you recall that I mentioned Acts chapter 12. And in Acts chapter 12, Peter had been arrested by Herod. And there was Peter in prison. If he wasn't released, he was going to be executed. So the church met in her home and prayed for Peter's release. And we know that the story tells us in Acts chapter 12 that an angel came to Peter and released him. And, and it was Peter that would make a beeline to Mary's house because Peter knew that the Christians would be there praying. So can I ask us a question as I stop and, and, and think about that for a moment? Do people know where you're going to be this year? Do they know that you're going to be in this place on Sundays and perhaps Wednesdays and maybe other times? That you've made a commitment to yourself and to your family? that we're going to go to that place of prayer. And we're going to be in that place of where God is worshipped. And we're going to be in that place where God's word is being taught. We're going to be in that place and make it a priority where we're with other believers. And Peter, he knew where the Christians were going to be. They're gathered, no doubt, at Mary's house. And I know that they're going to be there and they're going to be praying. That's where he would go. And where are people going to find you when they feel like they're imprisoned? When they feel like that they're in bondage and they're in change to the circumstances of life or the difficulties of the world. And I pray that they can follow you into this place or into the words that, that you encourage them with in giving them good news. That you can lead them to a place where they can be blessed and hear God's word and worship the Lord as well. So there's Mary, uh, house full of Christians praying for Peter's release. He knocks on the door, according to Acts chapter 12. A young girl named Rhoda goes and answers. She recognizes Peter's voice on the outside saying, let me in. And she got so excited, she left Peter out there. She goes back to the Christians that are gathered, and she says, it's Peter. He's outside. He's here. And they said, oh, he's not really here. It's just his angel. 
And so all that took place at the home of Mark and his mother Mary. If you haven't read Acts chapter 12, eventually they did open the door for Peter. So there they were, they're praying, and, and so Mary, brother, his name is Barnabas. And, and so most of you know that Barnabas, that he is mentioned in the scriptures in the book of Acts. And so he was a companion of Paul the Apostle. They would travel, Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey. And it was Mark that went with his uncle Barnabas and Paul on that first missionary journey as they went to the island of Cyprus. And we know from the book of Acts that Mark ended up leaving them. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Bible doesn't say specifically why he left them. There is speculation that Mark was very much afraid to go into the more hostile areas of Asia, which Barnabas and, and, and um, Paul would go into. Matter of fact, Paul ended up getting stoned and left for dead when they went into that area. And so Mark was very much afraid. And he bailed out and he went back to Jerusalem. That speculation, we don't know for sure, but I think it's a, it's a good speculation. I think it's, it's a good um, you know, reasoning why Mark left, because he was afraid. He didn't want to go into those hostile areas. So here they are in their first missionary journey. We know that Paul would be upset about that, because when it came to their second missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul are ready to leave, and all of a sudden Barnabas says, I'm going to bring John Mark with us. And Paul said, no way, he's not going to come. He bailed on us on the first time. I need somebody who's more committed. And so there was this contention between Barnabas and Paul and over John Mark. And so what ended up happening is Barnabas took John Mark with him to the island of Cyprus. Paul took Silas and headed out towards Asia. But the breach, I believe, didn't last very long. Because there's hints in the scripture that the contention between Paul and Barnabas would heal. And we know that Paul and Mark, that they would also reconcile as well because Mark is mentioned as being in Rome with Paul and ministering to his needs. And it was probably while Mark was in Rome with Paul that he wrote this gospel. It's one of the earliest gospels written and thought to be written sometime between the year or before the year 63 AD. And so the, the story of John Mark, the reason I'm telling you his story and a little bit of his background because I hope it encourages you. I know it encourages me because there are times perhaps in your life and some of you may feel this way. You feel like you dropped the ball. You turned away. You bailed out on what God wanted you to do or maybe you got full of fear and you ended up not doing what God had told you to do or what he put on your heart. And maybe this new year you're thinking, I would like to, to serve the Lord or walk with the Lord closely or know Him more or please Him with my life, but I've blown it. I've really messed up. I chickened out or I got excuses, whatever it might be, and, and the Lord surely can't use me now. And surely I can't draw close to the Lord. I want you to remember the story of John Mark who bailed on his first missionary journey, who failed, who ended up having contention with, with Paul the Apostle, but there was one who came along, his uncle Barnabas, which means Barnabas the son of consolation, who restored him and John Mark went on to minister effectively, that the Lord used him. And I want to tell you this, the good news is that 
God is the God of second chances. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I have blown in in the past, this is a new year and a new beginning for you to say on this day that, you know what, Lord, I turn to you and I'm going to trust in you. And I know that all my sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ, washed away by Jesus Christ, by what he did on Calvary's cross. And so I'm turning to you and surrendering to you, Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in my life and know that he is the God of second chances. I am so thankful for that because I know that I have failed, that I have fallen short in times of my life and the Lord didn't give up on me and the Lord didn't give up on John Mark. He ended up ministering effectively. Matter of fact, Paul the Apostle, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last words that we have recorded of Paul the Apostle there, that Paul asked specifically for Mark, bring him here, he's useful to me. And you know what? You're useful to God. But you surrender to him and trust in him. And may we be ones that we encourage others that feel like they have failed or they've fallen short, that you turn to Jesus, surrender to him, and build them up, that they can too be used of the Lord and live a life that is pleasing to him. And so here Mark begins to share with us his perspective of Jesus as the servant, the Son of God. So Mark's not telling us anything about the early years of Jesus, but he starts right in with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send you my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Here in verse 2, it's, the only one of a few places that Mark actually quotes from the Old Testament. So in verse 2, he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, and then in verse 3, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. We read in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So keep in mind that John's baptism, this one that, that came preparing the way for Jesus Christ, that John the Baptist, his baptism was not for salvation, but for preparation getting people to admit that they were sinners, that they had fallen short, that they were sinful in need of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So it was preparatory is what it was, for Jesus had not yet presented the full gospel message, died for their sins. John, he preached a baptism of repentance. Now, John the Baptist, his ministry and his message was so needed in that day. You see, for 400 years, there had not been a prophet in the land that we're aware of. From the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, up until the ministry of John the Baptist, it was a time frame of 400 years, and we're not aware of any prophet that was on the scene speaking to God's people. That's a long time. And eventually what happened during that time was that the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had taken over the religious life of the nation with their emphasis on tradition and rituals and outward appearances, an expression of the religiousness. But there isn't any real relationship that was there. There wasn't any real devotion and a turning away from sin and a surrender to God. And Jesus ended up rebu rebuking those religious leaders, as we're going to see when we travel through this gospel. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're all polished on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. There was a spiritual deadness that was in the nation. 
So John's baptism and ministry was calling people to true repentance and giving themselves to God. It is a message that is needed today. It took a lot of humility for those to come out to the river to be baptized for the remission of sin, to admit that they were a sinner. And John was going to point them to the one who's going to take away their sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was so unlike the religious leaders who came out there with their pride and their arrogance and trusting in their own righteousness. It is such a needed message today to humble ourselves. And we need to give that message. Humble your heart before God. Admit that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask for forgiveness. Receive him into your life. Recognize that you're to yield your life to him. And so verse 5, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So thousands of people are leaving their homes, their, their jobs, their families, as it says in verse 5. All of Jerusalem and Judea went out to see John this this, this seem, seemingly strange but very remarkable man preaching a, a baptism of repentance, saying that the Messiah, the Lamb of God, is coming. And John the Baptist, a rugged prophet who wore camel's hair and ate locusts. But the things that he was saying touched the very heart of the souls of the people because they knew that they needed a Savior. They knew that they were sinners. And John says, I am baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John, is, as well as us, we can point people to the Lamb of God. We can tell people about God. But we really can't take people beyond that. That requires the life of the Holy Spirit. The life of the Holy Spirit to convict people, to open up their hearts, to realize that they need the Savior of the world, and then the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to everyone who is a believer. And so John, is, is, he's baptizing, he's calling people to repent, preparing the way of the one who will be coming. But he says, there's going to come one that's mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And just as you see in Acts chapter 1, it would be those disciples right before the birth of the church. that The Holy Spirit came upon them to give them the power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so back to the gospel here, account of, of Mark. Jesus shows up and he requests that he be baptized by John. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would Jesus request to be baptized by John? This is a baptism of repentance that we're told here. Jesus had no sin. What did he have to confess? He didn't have to repent of anything. Everything that he did, and Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was 30 years of age when he got baptized. And everything that Jesus did for those 30 years, everything that he said, every activity that was involved in, was according to the will of the Father. He had lived a perfect life. 
Now, when we talk about baptism, you and I, as we think about baptism, we know that it's a symbol in Romans chapter 6 of death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you go into the water, as you go under the water, and then come out of the water, what you're saying, I realize that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, and so too are my old ways, the old life, buried, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me. The life of Jesus Christ is now inside of me. I'm a new creature in Christ. So baptism is that symbol of death and burial and resurrection, but it's also where we identify with Christ, isn't it? Now that Greek word baptizo, where we get our word baptism, it means simply to immerse. And it was a term that was used for years of those who would dye cloth. That is, they would uh, color cloth. You would take a natural, whitey piece of material, and you would immerse it or baptize it in colored dye. And then it would come out the color of the dye that you put it in. So you put that piece of cloth in the purple dye, then it would be identified with the dye, and, and it would be immersed. And so that dye would come out purple. So baptism is not just a, a symbol of dying, the old man dead, but also of identifying. Where one is saying, I am identifying with Christ. What is Jesus doing here? I think he's identifying with us. Jesus was associating himself with us. He's not ashamed of me, and he's not ashamed of you, but he identifies with you and me. And Jesus declared his intention to meet the righteous demand of God by himself undertaking to pay the debt of man by going to Calvary's cross and dying for our sins. So baptism, the baptism was clearly an act of identification. Jesus came to die. He was saying, I know that I will be dying. I came to die. Every other teacher, philosopher, spiritual leader, guru came to live. And death interrupted their so-called ministry. Buddha can no longer teach. Confucius can no longer expound. Muhammad can no longer disciple. Death interrupted their ministry, but not so with Christ. Because he came to die. Death fulfilled his ministry. His death and his resurrection. And in his baptism, he was saying from the very beginning, I know why I have come. I've come to die, to be buried and resurrected again. And then we as Christians, in our baptism, we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we get to live in that newness of life. And so what happened, verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So all the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in unity of the one true God, Jesus being anointed by the Spirit to give him the power to meet the demands of the ministry upon which he's about to launch. Our Lord anointed with power, and it would be some weeks later, a few weeks after this, that Jesus is back up in Nazareth. He is in the synagogue according to Luke's gospel. And Jesus begins to read from the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 61, which dealt with a word that applied to himself, a prophecy that applied to himself. And he read from Isaiah chapter 61 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These were the ministries that he would do. 
So for the next three and a half years, we see his public ministry begin, and it begins with his baptism and the anointing of the Holy Spirit with power. And Jesus hears the voice of the Father saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So again, everything that he did and everything that he said, every activity he was involved in was pleasing to the Father. My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know that you who are a believer, that you are in Christ? You that are here this morning. You are in Christ. And that means that the Lord is one that we can have a relationship with. And enjoy Him. And fellowship with Him. And we can really know Him. And that's what Christianity really is all about. Is that personal relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. And Christ is in us. And then the power of the Holy Spirit upon us and living in our hearts that we can live a life that is pleasing to Him so we can hear the voice of the Father and saying, I'm well pleased in what you're doing and how you're living and speaking and the activities that you're involved in. The work of the Spirit in our lives as we do indeed walk in that newness of life. And Christ is in us giving us the power to live a life that is pleasing to him. So Jesus heard those words. I'm placed in Christ. I hear those words as well as I live for him, as I have devotion for him, as I love him. And then what is in my heart is worked out in my life. And Christ is in my heart. And so immediately, verse 12, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So Mark's gospel tells us that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days where he would be tempted of Satan after this glorious experience of baptism, hearing the voice of the Father, being empowered by the Spirit. Now the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Now, how many times have you discovered that after a spiritual high, a time where the Lord has really ministered to you or spiritual triumph comes into your life, that you'll find right after that that there's trouble and there's a battle, and the enemy comes against you. Maybe in your life you're, you're doing what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. I'm being led by the Spirit to do this ministry, to live this way, and all of a sudden the enemy rises up, begins to tempt you, comes against you. That will happen in life, and we need to understand that. We talked about on Wednesday in 1 Samuel chapter 7, here the days of the judges finally come to an end and so when it comes to an end the people they put away their idols of Baal and Astaroth and they turned to the Lord and they worshiped him and they served him only and it was a wonderful time finally the days of the judges are over that lasted for almost 400 years that brought them defeat and discouragement and, and bondage and they turned to the Lord and all of a sudden right after that the next verse or two, it tells us how the Philistines rose up, the enemies, against the children of Israel, and they were afraid. And you see, as you're coming here and you're growing in God's Word, and as you're growing in your love for Him, and as you are being led by the Spirit to live a life pleasing to Him, know this, that the enemy is going to rise up and try to come against you and tempt you and try to discourage you. That's what He does. And so Jesus here, driven out into the wilderness here and he's being tempted by satan why as hebrew says he's our great high priest tempted in all points like we yet without sin 
we have a compassionate high priest who can relate to the temptations of the enemy against us because he was tempted in all ways yet without sin. And we can go to our compassionate high priest who is also our intercessor, who is our advocate, who is our Savior, our Redeemer. And as we discuss in our Daniel study, is Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren who will accuse you day and night before God. But we have victory because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony. And know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ is in you and the Holy Spirit working in your life. And you just submit to God and you look to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And as I mentioned on Wednesday, you know what? Really, it's the enemy that needs to be afraid. And I think that he's the one that gets the trembling when he sees a man. When husbands, when fathers, you're on your knees and you're praying before the Lord for your family. When a wife, when a mother is praying for her kids and praying for those that she knows that are linked to her in her life and interceding. And for any of us that are seeking the Lord and growing in Him, He's the one that really trembles. You see, we put on the whole armor of God and we know that we have victory in Jesus Christ. Oh, he'll try to come against you. He'll throw those fiery darts at you. But you keep walking with him because he's already given us victory through the cross of Calvary. Wiping out the handwriting of the requirements, as Colossians chapter 2 says, and disarming those principalities and powers, making a spectacle of them. But you be careful because Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as you're growing in this new year, as this church is growing in the things of God, he will come against us. But we can turn to him who has brought us victory. And so verse 13 mentions he was with the wild beast. Mark uniquely brings out this fact that he was with the wild beast. And of course he's there for 40 days. And there in the temptation as we know from the other gospel accounts, in verse 14, now after John was put in prison. So here Mark passes over a full year of Jesus' ministry. You have to go to John's gospel to get a detail of that year. John alone records Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the wedding at Cana where he did his first miracle. Mark passes over those events in silence and begins his account of Jesus with the calling of disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And so we read again in verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired servants and went after him. So Jesus begins calling his disciples to follow him. And we see that he starts with fishermen. They weren't the religious elite of the nation. They weren't the learned scholars of their religion. They weren't any of those. They were just simple fishermen. Jesus was inclined, we know several of the Disciples he picked were fishermen, just simple men, uneducated and untrained. But I like the fact that he picked.
pick fishermen. I, I really do. Because you see, fishermen by nature need to know how to persevere. Those guys would go out there to the sea, whether it was calm or whether it was stormy. And they had to go out there daily because that's how they made their living. And so they would persevere. They would be out there in difficult times and weather and in the calm times. And so too in ministry, when you serve the Lord, you need to do it in season and out of season. When things are going well, when the sun is shining, and when it's tough and the winds are blowing, the winds of adversity and the storms that come into your life. You've got to be like a fisherman that just perseveres and is out there. Also, fishermen, they've got to work together. They would be in the boat. They would work together. One would tell them where to cast the nets, and the others would cast and pull it in, and they worked as a team. And so, too, when you're used of the Lord, you've got to work with others. They've got to be able to minister with others and co-labor with others in the Lord. And that's what they were doing. They had to have patience. Being a fisherman, certainly you've got to be patient. Some people say, I don't like to fish because I don't have the patience for it. But you know what? When you serve the Lord, you've got to be patient, waiting for the Lord's work. And you see, those understandings are v- valuable in these guys being fishermen for men. And another thing that's kind of interesting, notice that Peter and Andrew, they were casting their nets into the sea. James and John, we are told, they were mending their nets in their father's boats. And the reason that catches my attention is because the ministry of Peter and Andrew was evangelizing. You look at some of the glimpses of Andrew in the gospel accounts, we see he was always bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. We know that he would bring the little boy with the loaves and fishes to Jesus. He was the one in John chapter 12 that brought the Greeks that came to Jerusalem to see Jesus. He was always bringing people to Jesus. He was into evangelism, casting the nets. And Peter, we know about him. On the day of Pentecost, he stood up and preached and 3,000 were saved. So you talk about quite a catch. He was a fisher of men. That was their ministry. There was John. We know that James and John brothers, and their ministry was mending people. John called the apostle of love, talking about love, emphasizing love, causing people to be knit together in love. And James followed that same kind of ministry. James would be the first of the apostles to be put to death. But that's what they were doing. So it kind of gives a clue into their ministry. Here's Andrew and Peter casting their nets into evangelism. Here's John and James mending their nets. And the reason I'm mentioning that it's because whatever the Lord has called you to do, oftentimes he, he will call you in the natural talents and giftings that you have. Oh, he's going to gift you spiritually in a supernatural way. But oftentimes it kind of comes in a natural way. And what I mean by that is what are your interests? How's your temperament? What do you enjoy doing? What's your personality like? And I often find that it is in those things that how God made you and how he has developed you is how he's going to use you in those ways. Oh, he's going to gift you, certainly is, in a supernatural way, but use you in a supernatural, natural way. And maybe you're here, and what are your interests as the Lord puts on your heart to serve him? What is it that you desire to do for him? What is it that you're good at doing? Are you good at using your hands? Are you good at technical things? Are you one that you just love to serve in very practical ways? 
Do you love teaching the Word of God, maybe the children? Do you love working with children and ministering to them? What is it that you enjoy doing and how your personality is, what your interests are? And so here was Peter, these guys, they're, they're casting the nets. So you guys are going to be evangelism. And John, you guys are going to be more pastor types as you're going to be mending people. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that some plant and some water, but God gets the increase. But one other point I'd like to make, and then we're going to go to communion. You notice here that they immediately left their boats. And I think particularly about John he is a young man here at this time, and his brother, uh, they would leave their, their, their father's boat. And here it says that Zebedee had servants. He was big time, in other words. And in John's gospel, it is told to us that John knew the high priest. Now, how would John know the high priest, a fisherman from Galilee? Well, it is suggested that what John and his brothers and what his dad would do to hire servants is they would bring these fish from the Sea of Galilee up to Jerusalem. And you can go to Jerusalem today and they'll tell you where Zebedee's fish stand was, the father of John. And as here is John and his brother, James and John, being called into ministry, that they left their nets immediately. Peter and Andrew left their nets immediately and followed after Jesus. What has the Lord put on your heart? Have you delayed in hearing the voice of the Lord as you do and responding to that voice that he's put into your ear and into your heart as he speaks to you? Are you saying, I'm just too busy? I got my job, I got my business, and I know that we have jobs and businesses that take up a lot of time. But maybe the Lord's pressing some things on your heart. And you've just kind of put it along on the side. And maybe this new year, the Lord would have you come back to that. James and John, they were big time. And they left a lot vocationally, financially, to follow after one so they can become fishers of men. And what I hope that in this year, that you would be ones, as you respond to the Lord and what he's putting on your heart, that he would become the priority as he desires to use you to be fishers of men, to be ones used of him for his kingdom, his kingdom which is going to last forever. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the beginning of this gospel, good news of Jesus Christ who came to this world to die for us. It was determined before the foundations of the world, as the New Testament tells us, that he would come and die for our sins. And that's why we come to the communion table, Lord, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. 